And uh, today we continue our study in First Peter, a letter to the church to encourage the church to live out the values of Christ that they have been taught, even while they find themselves in a foreign land, even while they find themselves persecuted, continue to live like Christ taught them how to live. Pastor Scott kicked us off last week. This week we are in chapter 2, beginning in verses 4 through 10. We're talking about living stones. That's why I'm thankful Brett and Angela are here. They are uh, in, very, in the flesh, putting down stones <laughs> and creating for others. But like Brett asked for prayer, for the living stones to be created at the work sites among the men so that they can go home and be stones and living stones in their own homes. So let's read this together. First Peter 2, verses 4 through 10. Now you are coming to him as to a living stone. Even though this stone was rejected by humans, from God's perspective, it is chosen, valuable. You yourselves are being built like living stones into a spiritual temple. You are being made into a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Thus, it is written in scripture, look, I am laying a cornerstone in Zion, chosen, valuable. The person who believes in him will never be ashamed. So God honors you who believe. For those who refuse to believe, though, the stone that the builders tossed aside has become the capstone. This is a stone that makes people stumble and a rock that makes, people, makes them fall. Because they refuse to believe in the word, they stumble. Indeed, this is the end to which they were appointed. But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people who are God's own possession. You have become this people so that you may speak of the wonderful acts of the one who called you out of darkness and into his amazing light. Once you weren't a people, but now... You are God's people. Once you hadn't received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Heavenly Father, be with us in this word today. Lord God, I pray that your word would go forth, that they not be my words. You may use them. You may make them distinct in some way, but Lord God, uh, put aside any, any words that are not of you, and may the words that are from the kingdom, words that are from the spirit, stick in hearts today, Lord, and help us to experience you and encounter you anew for the sake of your children and that we may have courage to teach our children how to live a life even with competing values. We thank you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> uh, I want to read you a little excerpt out of this book called Beautiful Resistance by John Tyson. Uh, I think resistance is a lot of what Peter is uh, telling us today in his letter. I think his letter is all about resistance. And uh, so I want to bring you back to 1933, Nazi Germany. And in that time, the, the Nazi regime was coming to power 
And they didn't just want to rule politically. It says from Galen Barker, uh, he wanted to control the hearts and the souls of its citizens at a fundamental level. Therefore, this was much more than a religious, this was much a a religious battle as it was a political struggle. For we know that through this coming to power, not just politically, but ruling the hearts and the lives of people, determining what was right, who was right, who was wrong, the extermination of six million Jews Jews took place. And not only that, but when Nazi Germany came into the power, into the church, and there was acquiescing of power from religious leaders to Nazi leadership, all non-Aryan-raced people, uh, clergy members, were removed from the church. There was even the desire to remove the Old Testament from Scripture and to chop up the New Testament to say exactly what this group wanted it to say. There was resistance for those who were awake. Penned by Karl Barth, the Barman Declaration was written and signed, and it said, we reject the Nazi leadership and their, and their twisting of the truth. And it was during this time that Bonhoeffer was uh, preaching against uh, the Nazi regime, and he was approached about starting a seminary in the little town of Finkenwald, where it would be uh, basically living out the Sermon on the Mount for reals. <laughs> you know, not just like talking about it, but actually having... Uh, life rhythms and community and that lived out in real time. And it was the coming together of this seminary where the cost of discipleship and life together were written in real time. And so there was a man named uh, uh, Wilhelm Niesel who was a, had heard about this seminary that uh, Bonhoeffer had started and wanted to go see it in, in person because he was concerned about too much spiritualism happening. So this man had not yet thought the Nazi regime was a concern and that Bonhoeffer was a little off the rails. And so he goes and he sees him. So this is, I, I'm sorry, I don't have a slide for you today, but I'll read it for you. Bonhoeffer took Niesel on a rowing trip to the Otter Sound, which is right adjacent to the home where they were having the seminary, and across uh, from a Nazi training ground. When the two rowers reached the far shore, Bonhoeffer led Niesel up a small hill, hill to a clearing from which they could see in the distance a vast field and the runways of a nearby squadron. German fighter planes were taking off and landing, and soldiers moved hurriedly in purposeful patterns like so many ants. Bonhoeffer spoke of a new generation of Germans in training whose disciplines were formed for a kingdom of hardness and cruelty. It would be necessary, he explained, to propose a superior discipline if the Nazis were to be defeated. End quote. You have to be stronger than these tormentors that you find everywhere today. Bonhoeffer's quote in question 
is relevant for us today. Are we, the church, disciplined and stronger than the tormentors that we find everywhere today? Are we even a we? Or are we individuals that somehow find ourselves here in the same place at the same time today? If we are to be salt and light in the world, we must act like a single body that has many parts, a single home made of many pieces, living stones. And we are being asked, are we willing to be shaped and hewn and stacked together by the great builder for a purpose that's greater than all of our own personal safety and desires and needs? Is this here stronger than that there? Well, the good news is, Jesus and his life and teachings provide us a way to grow stronger together. That's what Peter's letter is all about for us today. Peter encourages true believers of Jesus to endure suffering through means of resistance, just like Jesus taught them. And that might not be the word you expected to hear. Resistance. But let me give you a few examples of just the ways, just the, these, are, these are on-ramp ways in which Jesus taught us how to resist the culture around us. Take the word gospel, for example. The word gospel is not, and it didn't start out as a spiritual term, it was primarily a political term at the time uh, for Rome. So in the Greco-Roman world, from the time of Alexander the Great and on into the Roman Empire, this word was used to refer to history-making, world-shaping reports of political, military, and social, uh, societal victories. But the writers of the gospel co-opted this word as a mean of resistance of propaganda to the truth and to re-shed light on the truth of God. So they took a word that was used only by Caesar and about Caesar to say, the gospel is actually truly about Jesus Christ. So by embracing the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're inherently resisting the kingdom of Caesar. And let's talk about that word, kingdom. Because the only valid kingdom in Rome was Rome. And any competing kingdoms were crushed. Right? We know this about Rome. They would crush their enemies. And they would not allow them to get a foothold to possibly be a a competitor. But what did Jesus come preaching? He came preaching the kingdom of God. That's all Jesus preached, was the kingdom of God. So he was a direct competitor of the kingdom of Rome in that time. And when he encouraged his followers, he said, receive the kingdom of God. Don't 
He didn't say bring it. He didn't say be it. He said receive it. And so you yourself would be walking around as the kingdom of God in competition with it. So there's just this, there's just this resistance that's built into our life as Christians. And even today's text, Jesus as a living stone. Jesus is the living stone, the living stone, as opposed to the dead stones that idols are made out of. So this is a resistance to idol worship and any who would cast themselves as the rock of salvation like Caesar did. So by calling Jesus a living stone, he is the rock of salvation, not Caesar. When we embrace, our Christian life is all about embrace and resistance. Our life, church, is one of Resistance to the cultural formation of our hearts and identities. When we embrace the gospel of Jesus, the kingdom of God, and Jesus as the living stone, then we are inherently resisting the world around us. The Christian life is one about this, embrace and resistance. And what better person to communicate this message of resistance of like with Jesus as the living stone, then Peter, who is the rock. Peter's life of failure and repair, to be prepared to suffer for Jesus' sake is the model that we need as the church. And so today we're going to follow a little bit of the life of Peter and overlay it with what he's writing the church today to kind of get its full impact. Why he's saying, what's kind of behind what he's saying to us today. So we're going to follow that pattern. Failure, repair, prepared. So let's start with that first one. Failure. Failure is a keen demonstrator of the state of our hearts. But it doesn't define who we are. Even when we are new people with new names and we fail, we are not undone. For even the act of admitting failures, owning our sins, but not letting them define us is resistance to the narcissistic and egotistical ways of many leaders that we see today. It is countercultural. You know, Peter was not always named Peter. His birth name was Simon. He was given a new name by Jesus the first day they met. So it just goes like this. Uh, Jesus is brought to Peter and he looks right at him and he says, you are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas. Cephas is Aramaic for Peter and Peter is Greek for rock. Right there on the spot, Jesus names Peter who he is and who he will be, a rock Has Jesus ever given you a name? If he has, you know it, because it stays with you forever. It defines you. And that's how Peter starts this section in in chapter 2. It's with naming both Christ and us as stones, living stones. It says this in verses 4 and 5. Now you are coming to him, Jesus, as to a living stone. And then, you yourselves are being built up like living stones into a spiritual 
temple. If you have never been given a name by God, receive this one. You are living stone. You all are living stones. We are set up by God to help others remember an alternative way of life than the one that they are living. This naming for remembrance brings to mind the Ebenezer stone in 1 Samuel 7. A stone of remembrance. So this is what happens when that stone gets set up, right? After a season of of failure, failure and rebellion on behalf of Israel, they were ready to return to the Lord. And so Samuel, their prophet, says this. If you are turning to the Lord with all your heart, then get rid of all your idols you have. Set your heart on the Lord. Worship him only. Then God will deliver you from your enemies. And on that day when Israel returned to the Lord, God fought for them and defeated the Philistines in their presence. And so Samuel, the prophet, set up a stone at the place where God saved them to remember the salvation that he had given them. And Samuel named it Ebenezer, which literally means Stone that saves. Stone that saves. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is a living stone that saves. And we likewise are the living stones that witness to the salvation of the living stone. As Peter says in verse 9 of our reading today, he, says it, he said this, You have become this people, living stones, so that you may speak of the wonderful acts of the one who called you out of darkness into his amazing light. This is who we are. Stones of remembrance, witnesses to the stone that saved each of our lives. When was the last time you shared your faith with another person? When was the last time you witnessed to the saving power of Jesus Christ in your life to someone else. Perhaps it's time. Perhaps it's time for you to share your faith with another. And yet, each one of us to a person has failed, like Israel, like Peter, to let our lives be beacons of light for Christ. We let Jesus himself become an obstacle rather than our foundation or our capstone. Verse 8 says this. This is a stone, referring to Jesus, this is a stone that makes people stumble and a rock that makes them fall because they refuse to believe in the word they stumble. Israel embraced false idols and False rulers, time and again, they refused to listen to their prophets and they killed them because they were trying to speak God's word to them. They stumbled. And Peter, at Jesus' moment of need, denies knowing or following him three times. He stumbled. Jesus calls for faithfulness and devotion his call for us to be to follow him and to be devoted to him become an obstacle for us being who we were created to be the church the experience of heaven on earth 
failure to let yourself be who you've been created to be. Have you ever experienced that? That because of your unwillingness to listen to Christ, that you don't live into your full self? Do you ever have that experience of being unwilling to tell people who Jesus is because your life is not right with Christ? I used to work at Washington Mutual right after college. I was called to, I was called to be a pastor, and then I went to a bank. It all kind of, I don't know how that all worked out, but it did. Uh, and when I worked at the bank, I worked for a man named Harry. He was my manager. And Harry never stopped preaching to me his gospel. And this was his gospel. You got to spend money to make money. That was Harry's gospel. And he would take me out on the town. We would get our shoes shined and we would go places and throw down big tips and, and tell people we work at Fifth and Union, right? And he drove a, drove a BMW and he got all done up. He always smelled really good. You know, all these kinds of things. You got to spend money to make money. He never stopped preaching his gospel to me. And never once did I preach my gospel to him. Years later, he was in the paper for stealing hundreds of thousands of dollars. And, you know, I, I didn't know how to feel about it, but I think one of the things I felt was, I wonder if Harry would have done that if I would have preached the gospel to him. I wonder if Harry would have maybe changed his life and not made that decision had I had faithfulness more than fear to tell him about my gospel. Maybe that would have changed his trajectory. May the Spirit convict us of letting Jesus be our stumbling block rather than our foundation and our capstone. But be encouraged, because like I started this section, although failure is a keen demonstrator of the state of our hearts, it doesn't define who we are. Failure is an opportunity for a new life and a new understanding of our identities to come forth. But we have to go through the failure. (laughs) You can't go around it. You got to go through the failure to repair before we are repaired. Sorry, prepared. I put too many aired. It's it's supposed to like you're supposed to be memorable, right? Like (laughs) you got to go through failure to repair, to be prepared. So let's go on to that next section, repair. Because that's what Peter had to do. Peter needed to do some repair after his denial of Christ. Peter, who's writing this letter with 20-20 hindsight, right? And he's telling us, the readers, the church, I, the rock, have failed. But learn from my failures and trust Christ, our living stone, in our collective crisis. Don't be deceived, church. We may live in the freest nation in the world, but we are being persecuted. Don't fall asleep. Be awake. Verse 8, which, uh, where, where did verse 8 say? This is a stone that makes people stumble. That phrase there, a stone that makes people, it's, it's actually a stone of offense. And it's the, it's the only different usage of stone in this passage. All the other ones are like a rock, you know? 
But Peter here talks about a stone of offense, and it's a double meaning. He's talking about Jesus, the stone that gets rejected, that caused people to stumble, yes, but he's also referring to himself, a stone of offense. He had offended Christ, and he had failed. He had caused others to stumble because of his failure. And now he's riding, thinking about that time, and encouraging the church Even though you feel persecuted, you're in crisis, do not stumble. Trust Christ. So Peter's writing in 64 AD. This is two years before his imprisonment that would lead to his martyrdom. But it's during the time of increased persecution from from Nero, who's the Caesar of, uh, of, of Rome at that time. He's encouraging us in the midst of persecution to remember who we are and whose we are, for it is by the personhood and power of Jesus that we will be anything pleasing to God. So hear these these verses, uh, five through seven. You yourselves are being built like living stones into a spiritual temple. You are being made into a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Thus it is written in scripture, Look, I am laying a cornerstone in Zion. A cornerstone is actually a foundation. So the language is a little tricky here, but cornerstone is a foundation. Um, chosen and valuable. The person who believes in him will never be, asha- uh, never be ashamed. So God honors you who believe. For those who refuse to believe, though the stone the builders tossed aside has become the capstone. So what is he talking about here? If we overlay Peter's life Uh, onto this encouragement here, we see Jesus had to do some repair to prepare him to be the living stone that he is. And so how how did Jesus become Peter's foundation and his capstone, his, the, the baseline and his completion, his alpha and his omega? How did that happen? Well, we get that from John 21, right? Jesus died, and he comes back, and he sees them on the shore, and he calls them in, and Peter comes to him, and they eat a meal. And then he asks them three questions, but they're all the same question. And he says, do you love me? And and Peter says, yes. Feed my sheep. Again, do you love me? Tend my sheep. Again, do you love me? A third time, and Peter is cut to the heart. And he says, yes. Then he says, feed my sheep. And those three questions, the three, do you love me, is basically offering forgiveness for each denial from the the time he was in the courtyard denying Christ. So Jesus forgives him. He, He forgives him. And he establishes that he is, even despite his his failure. He can repair anybody in any loss, in any circumstances, any situations or decisions you've made. Jesus can heal and forgive and repair and recall you back home. And what's so beautiful is the basis of it all. The basis of all of this is love. Jesus calls Peter to love. He doesn't even call him to lead. He calls him to love in the midst of the repair, to feed and tend his sheep with love. And then he says, follow me. 
To know Jesus is to know love. And to love others is to lead. And leading in love makes us resist the hatred in the world. The same year that I became uh, a pastor, I also became a father. And I felt over the course of our, my and Sarah's 15-year marriage, we've had four kids. And each time a child was born, I didn't, I didn't hear the Lord ask me this question, but I felt the invitation, do you love me? I felt, I felt over these four pregnancies and births that the Lord has asked me four times, do you love me? Then tend and feed your household. And, I've, and that's all coincided with my journey of being a pastor. And I learned to love the church by learning to love my family. And every time I felt like this question was posed, I felt like there was a, kind of an implicit, what is it, an adverb? Is that the words with the L-Y at the end? There's like an adverb in there. It's like, but it's not expressed. It's just sort of implicit. And the question goes like this. Will you sacrificially love me? God draws people to sacrificial love through many means, usually events of demanding great love or great sacrifice or great loss. But for me, fatherhood is what prepared me to love sacrificially. And that's the preparation that Christ is doing in all of us when we fail and he repairs and he restores and reconciles us. He is preparing us to love sacrificially. We didn't read this part in, uh, in chapter 2 of 1 Peter, but I'm going to read it. It's uh, verses 20, 21, and 24. It goes like this. But if you endure steadfastly when you've done good and suffer for it, this is commendable before God. You were called to this kind of endurance because Christ suffered on your behalf. He left you an example that you might follow in his footsteps. He did this so that we might live in righteousness, having nothing to do with sin. By his wounds, you were healed. Does anybody recognize that line? By his wounds, you were healed. It's a reference to a reading that we often make on Good Friday from the book of Isaiah. Here's an excerpt from chapter 53. He grew up like a young plant before us, like a root from dry ground. This is a prophecy about the Christ. He, he possessed no splendid form for us to see, no desirable appearance. He was despised and avoided by others, a man who suffered, who knew sickness well, like someone from whom people hid their faces, and he was despised, and we didn't think about him. It was certainly our sickness that he carried and our sufferings that he bore, but we thought him afflicted, struck down by God, and tormented. There's that word, tormented. He was pierced because of our rebellions and crushed because of our crimes. He bore the punishment that made us whole by his wounds. We are healed. 
This is what we are being prepared for. For the kind of love that Christ demonstrated on the cross, our living stone, he likewise calls us to living stones. He calls us to be willing to sacrifice our own particular agendas and wills and desires so that we collectively can be stacked together to be made into a holy home. What are we being stacked up for? What are we sacrificing for? It is so that this place can be a place where there is hope, where people can come as to a hospital and be restored. That when people are in their darkest times, they can see the church stacked up, sacrificing for, them, for one another and for the Lord to be something for others that's beyond themselves. I'm sorry if that was me. <laughs> Our faith and the little tiny seeds of it are greater than the hatred and the tormentors and the agendas of the world. And we see that happen in Finkenwald with Bonhoeffer. That seminary, it was only around for four years. And yet the discipleship and the call to discipleship that came out of that was bigger, became bigger than even Nazi Germany became. Nazi Germany is, the Nazi party is ashamed now. The, the German church is repentant. But the, the ripples of that four years of concentrated faith changed history. And so for us, I believe that Christ is calling us to sacrificial service because it resists self-serving values that are just rampant today. And I think in two particular ways in our church that we can see that. First is with our our children's ministry. For we have the opportunity to pass on the faith. We have an opportunity to shape, to participate and partner with the Spirit to, to, to shape our kids and our youth. And I think it's a significant deal because at present, our service team for kids isn't enough to go week to week to, to, to serve those children. And I know that pandemic has made us all more conservative with our time and trying to choose things that match our values, and I think that's good. But if you've been waiting for something where your values can be put into play and you can see the results of faith being transferred to the next generation, this is the ministry. This is the ministry. So I would encourage you to consider, even if you don't know anything about, I didn't know anything about kids before becoming a father and I don't know if that's showing in the way I'm raising my kids, but uh, just know you, we will train you. Do a background check. We'll train you. We'll empower you. We'll launch you to, to pass on the values of Christ to, to the youth. But the other is, as that uh, handsome man on the video said, connect groups. We have connect groups. And I do believe that we can be a church of small groups, that that's for 100% of this community. It's not, it's not enough to just come hear me and Scott and Lydia and Anna talk. It's not enough. You need to be in a small group. And so that starts with hosts. If you have the ability, the desire to, 
to receive people into your home or to organize a little bit, you can be a host of a, of a connect group. And so I'd encourage you with, on your connect card today, I want to be a host and I'll follow up with you and just talk with you about it. And we'll, we have trainings the, on August 28th and September 11th after church. They're the same one, so don't, you don't need to go to both. And we'll get you ready. We'll get you set. And we'll launch into this fall creating opportunities for people to belong so that we can collectively learn how to resist the values of the world and embrace the values of Christ. So I'm going to call the worship team back up. I'm going to call a couple of our prayer ministers up. And this is a, this is a time of response. We're going to receive communion today, which is our foundation. Christ is our foundation. And I want to encourage us to, to consider in what ways Christ is calling us to sacrificial love today. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was with his disciples, and he took bread, and he broke it, and he said, this is my body, broken for you. As often as you eat of it, remember me. So let's receive the body of Christ, broken for us. And in like manner, he took the cup, and he blessed it, and he said, this is my blood, shed for you in the blood of the new covenant. And as often as you drink of it, remember me. Let's receive the blood of Christ. So let us stand. And I'd like us to re- re- repeat this, uh, this phrase. Again, I don't have a slide, right? I didn't get on top of that this week. But let's stand and say with me these words. We are living stones. Let's, start, let's try that again. We are living stones. We are the church. Master, build us into your holy home. Be our capstone. Be our cornerstone. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship.